purposes for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. But more the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity. Aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if it's your own. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. How are you doing? Well, I think we've already established that I'm doing just fine, Stuart. But we uh, we are live at ACP. This is this is rather unusual. I haven't met most of the people in this room in person until today. All right, everything's <laughs> stuff, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you for that incisive commentary. So, uh, Paul, before everyone tunes out, why don't you just <laughs> why don't you tell people what this show's about, what we're going to be doing today? Sure, happy to. Thanks for asking. Thanks for asking, as always. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring in clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Usually, this time around, the format's a little bit different. We still have experts with us, but we're actually bringing to you clinical pearls we picked up from various sessions at ACP's 2019 conference. Um, and so we have the excellent and amazing Dr. Renee Diversal, who was with us for our Peabody Award-winning ultrasound episode, um, who's going to help us out with that, as well as a bunch of correspondence. And so we have a lot of um, knowledge bombs to drop on you. I won't even shame you for skipping ahead, though I will say, as I've every person I meet now makes a point of telling me that they don't skip ahead, which is nice. So I feel like <laughs> you've shamed them. I, yeah, yeah. So I think we should do a pre and post test of my shaming and see if it made a difference. So I think on this episode, I'll just, uh, I, I'm probably going to skip some of the pearls here or miss some of them, but we're going to be talking about back pain. We're going to be talking about women's health, cardiology, um, Maybe some uh, syphilis, definitely some syphilis, and uh, a whole bunch of other random stuff that we found interesting in the first day or so of the conference here and some of the pre-course. But let's let's introduce our guest, Renee Diverstal. She's our chief of POCUS well, at Cashlack Memorial. Renee, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting. I was super excited to be at the uh, POCUS pre-course because that is a marvel in in teaching. And uh, we are not getting paid to say this. My mic is not loud enough. No, you're, saying? you're pretty low. All right, let me let me turn my mic up a little bit. Better. Normally, I talk too loud. So, Renee, uh, but Stuart, I know. You, I think maybe you saw the second day of the pre-course, but it is amazing. There's like live patients there, like 25 live patients, 25 Indeed. instructors. Instructors, you get like a brief lesson, and then you go right to the bedside and like practice ultrasound on patients. It's like. One of the best learning experiences I've ever had. It's amazing. I'm verklempt. Speak amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt. It's um, a really amazing thing to get to. This is my first year co-directing it, even though I've been involved yeah. every year since they started it. And um, it's just the the passion in the room is Chris. We had discussed in a, the little clip that we uh, YouTubed out yesterday, I believe, or tweeted right. out. Um, the, the passion in the room is palpable. And I have to give you all props because at least three of the people there directly came up to me and said, I didn't even know that POCUS was a thing in internal medicine until your Curbsiders yeah. podcast. And I'm here because of it. And so, um, yeah, it was really pretty awesome because one of the goals is to actually change practice and get it out to the masses because I don't think there's a single patient in the world that wouldn't benefit from a little pocus. Now, I, I heard you had a waiting list of like 100. Is that yeah, about right? Yeah, nearly 92 people on the wait wow. list. Yeah, well, we, we would like to like triple the waiting list by uh, giving you so much praise for it. But Indeed. I, 
literally in the groups that I was with, there was like the the people in my group were like Pocus nerds that weren't, they weren't even instructors, but they were just like showing me like all this like Pocus stuff that they were doing at their own institution already. And they were here to like expand their knowledge. And I just like, I'm very excited to start doing this at my institution. Thanks. It was also yeah. really great because there were a lot of um, quite senior physicians in the in the group. And so to me, that means we're penetrating because for a long time, it was, you know, why would I do that? They do that in the ER, you know, or why it, that's not going to change my practice. And so, um, it just, it was, it was really great for us to see an increasing crowd in a increasingly, um, diverse group of people taking. So I, I think that, uh, I was, what I was most impressed with, like, I always found ultrasound like so intimidating because I can look at a CAT scan and be like, okay, I kind of know what that is and stuff, but the way that you all teach it and like all the, like, the different things that you're like shred sign and all this curtain and all this stuff, like it, it makes you remember things. And then, and it's very, it's like you very quickly start to build up like where you actually can look at an ultrasound and get some information from it. Yeah. And Chris mentioned that last July on the, on the POCUS podcast that yeah. he felt like he came to our course and then went back and was like, Oh my gosh, I totally can set, I can right. see that. I can tell what that is. And um, I also have to give props to all of the incredible, uh, the cr- incredible faculty that we have at the course, the lectures, all the hands-on people. It really is a is a most almost entirely a who's who of internal medicine. People, of course, teach at other you know SHM, and mm. we're working on SGM and basically every international na- national internal medicine yeah. group. But the it's a it's an incredibly high level group of teachers. Right. I was just going to sing their praises because they're enthusiastic. They could not be nicer. Like even so. <laughs> Because even me, I was I was learning. Um, it, it doesn't even matter. I think the DVT scan. And one of the instructors was like, "Well, if you're someone who doesn't do a whole lot of central lines, I can see why you would put a probe there." So I was like, "Oh, that's a really nice way to say that's not where you put that at all." Like he just like they made you feel so comfortable, even if you didn't know what you were doing. So they were just the faculty to a person were spectacular. It just it was a great experience. Yeah, and unusual, unusually, like I, I I said this to Paul. I was literally like, "This seems like a very happy, nice group of people." Like outside of the normal, it was unsettling. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. I we're, like we're not like, what um, are these crazy axe murderers. <laughs> we're not. We're not that. Uh, we yeah. just. We just really love it, and it's so exciting because for a long time, uh, you know, we would have our interest group meetings. Like we'd be hidden away in a little side part of ACP, or we'd like go to a bar or something. You know, like the EM people talk about in the early yeah. days, their interest group meetings being in their hotel rooms. Right, and it's like we have arrived. We have a little a little sticker on badges. Yeah. There's ultrasound alley in the focus Waxman Clinical focus, Center. Right? Yeah, yeah, we're we're hitting the big time, and we are fired up for it. All so. right, well, well deserved. So I think this is going to be a shorter episode, so we got to get into clinical pearls. I think people now are getting the idea that POCUS is something they need to need to be doing. And uh, why don't we start, Renee, with you. Uh, as our esteemed right. guest, why don't you tell us some, what did you learn today so far? So I'm on the ACP Clinical Skills Committee, and that means I get to go judge talks as a, as a monitor. But the good news is that they've all been, they, they're all excellent. So this morning I went to see pearls from clinical images to improve your knowledge base and refine your clinical skills by Dr. Paul Aronowitz. And um, so two of my favorite ones, I am from Oregon, but I did my residency back in Boston. So when I moved back, Lyme was everywhere, but before it was only in the textbooks. And so it was, you learn the erythema migrans, your central clearing, all of those things. And so he actually had a couple of different pictures and gave some stats that only 10% of the Lyme disease rash, the erythema migrans, actually has that central clearing. So it's yet another thing that we study for the boards that like is not totally unhelpful. Like exactly. nine out of 10 patients exactly. are not going to have central clearing. Yeah. So the one that he showed had a nice kind of dusky 
bluish, um, almost purplish central area. And then he also showed another case uh, of bullous erythema migraines, which just was, cr- I'd never even Sounds heard that terrifying. before. So yeah, it looked, it looked kind of terrifying as well. Yeah. So yeah. So that was, that was a big one that I learned. And then he also had a, a cool picture of a woman with just frank proptosis seen laterally in from the front. You could see her entire sclera all the way around her iris. And so he dropped a knowledge bomb on me that I had no idea, which is that lid retraction has a likelihood ratio, a positive likelihood ratio of 33 for a, uh, hyperthyroidism. So even if your pretest probability is astronomically low, if you use that little fancy little nomogram, it's pretty darn high afterwards. So so basically, if you can see their sclera all the way around, all the way around, and you feel like their eyes are bulging a bit, then you should, you it was, know. yeah, it was impressive. So that's good. We love picking up physical exam signs, especially yeah, since it's so well bumps. taught in this country, <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> absolutely. Particularly in this auto medium. Yeah. Well, Paul, uh, did you, did you have anything you wanted to share? Sure. Bunches of stuff. I went to the low back pain talk, get your patient back in the game. A lot of it was stuff I think we probably know. It's always nice because I'm an idiot. It's nice for me to learn by repetition. So the more I hear, the better off I do. So the stuff that you know already, most patients do not benefit from early imaging. Um, so the compression fracture that you're worried about, only 4% of the time is the case in acute low back pain. Cauda equina is the one that scares all of us. And it's absurdly low. It's like 0.00003%. Like statistically, the odds of you actually seeing it are really insanely low. So be conservative with imaging, which we know. The the pearl that I liked the most is as you're being quietly terrified about cauda equina is the way to ask about it. So for cauda equina, it's the, the incontinence that you ask about. It's not enough to ask, you know, do you have control of your bowels or bladder? The incontinence is actually an overflow incontinence. And so the way to ask is, can you pee when you want to, and can you hold it when you want to? Um, and then the other question to ask about the saddle anesthesia is because asking, hey, are you kind of numb down there? And then sort of pointing noncommittally is probably not the best way to do it. <laughs> so more specifically is when you wipe with toilet paper, does it feel different to you? And if the patient says yes to those, um, then you can be alarmed and maybe you're the one who hit the jackpot and actually found cauda equina in the outpatient setting. So I found that really useful. I love that. Those are, I definitely was not asking questions that way. I wouldn't use the term jackpot though. <laughs> uh paul so this naturally leads into my as you know i've been waiting to talk about ankylosing spondylitis so because i i i've always for the past six years i felt that i have ankylosing spondylitis because in residency i had like i had back pain and i was like if you're like under 40 and you look up back pain it's like you must have ankylosing spondylitis so i was not i, I was not uh let's say this i i am not uh, I can't use the words, but I'm no more reassured that I, I think more than ever now that I have it because it's a, supposedly a lot more common than we think about 1% of the population and the, the imaging findings often won't show up for like 10 years after the start of it. But what I didn't know is that ankylosing spondylitis, like the bamboo spine, that's only like a small percentage of people. There is like a lot of people have inflammatory back pain. And then they may go down a pathway where they do develop sacroiliitis and they have imaging findings, but not everyone will. But some of those people with this, he called it non-radio, non-radiographic axial spondylitis is basically like inflammatory back pain without imaging findings. And those patients still might be candidates for like biologic therapy. And uh, some, of the, some of the things that he said to look for for red flags were uh, insidious onset, of course, age before 45 years old, people that have pain at night, that's always a red flag, and uh, it should be chronic, 
And these people should tell you that they feel better when they're exercising. That's one of my main red Does flags. Does your TRX help you in your <laughs> office? Do you feel better? Yeah. At so that? if I'm, as long as I'm TRXing and yeah, jumping, okay. rope, jumping rope, good. Jumping rope, I feel great. Uh, but I did have this early onset. Uh, the, the the thing that probably rules me out, I did not have much response to high-dose NSAIDs. High-dose NSAIDs should make the back pain feel better. So How high? Yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, anti-inflammatory doses, like 800 of ibuprofen. He didn't he didn't exactly say, but he's gotcha. not like, not what it tells you to take on the bottle. But like, you know, if you look up Lexicomp and it says, do not exceed this dose. Yeah. But probably it's ankylosing spondylosis. Though, but right? pro- <laughs> probably. Or my suggestion was POTS. I said, yeah. you know, we should go from one one yeah. rare thing to another. And and he did say that his ophthalmologist colleagues sometimes pick these people up because they have oh, uveitis. And then, then they never thought to mention the back pain, but then they mentioned that they have back pain. So, But I would just t- keep this in mind, kind of ask people about if, if you see patients under 45 with back pain, ask them about this sort of, is it better with exercise? Ha- do NSAIDs really help their pain? And then have they ever had like uveitis, psoriasis, IBD? So anyway... I probably don't have ankylosing spondylitis, Paul. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not convinced. Probably serial imaging would be good for you. I mean, most people know, but for you, maybe. I can. You, would you order an HLA B27? Hundred percent. Yeah, MRI, all of it, biopsy. I'm probably not going to help, but still, just be on the safe side. So, seven point five percent of white Americans have a positive HLA B27. Wow. But only about five percent of those with a positive HLA B twenty seven actually have ankylosing spondylitis. So still, the rest of them just have anxiety. <laughs> the rest of them just have anxiety. All right, Renee, back to you. Any other clinical pearls? You were at Adam Rodman's talk. Yes, it was. It was fantastic. It was awesome to see him because, as you know, we at OHSU are pretty proud of our of our crew that's yes trying to spread out and take over the country with medical education. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was great. It was great to catch up with him and see his adorable little baby in the talk. And he and Tony bro, brew. I always say yeah. it wrong. Tony brew, right? I think it's Tony brew. Okay. He'll well, I think us. bro, bro. Yeah, um, <laughs> in any case, they were <laughs> phenomenal. Our bro, Tony brew. Yes, exactly. They were phenomenal. And their, their comedic timing and chemistry in the talk was like, I, I just feel like they should give every talk that's ever like every year they have to be back acp you're hearing this yeah every year i want i them back. i agree i will put my stamp of approval on that which is worth nothing <laughs> <laughs> Stuart was there right sorry i can't reach the mic paul's paul's hiding it from on purpose <laughs> <laughs> yeah did, did you want me to go ahead and say that quote yes okay it's this wonderful quote by Voltaire. It says, On their flippant way through Italy, the French carelessly picked up Genoa, Naples, and Syphilis. Then they were thrown out and deprived of Naples and Genoa, but they did not lose everything. Syphilis went with them. <laughs> and with an accent. <laughs> what accent was that specifically? <laughs> Voltaire. <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> All right, so what, Renee, what pearls from the, from the Adam Rodman, Tony Brew talk, what was your favorite pearl about that whole thing? I mean, this was like an extensive talk that took us through many ages. Incredible. All the way through the history, um, having just mentioned the rash of Lyme disease, uh, I too found the pearl very interesting that uh, it, the treponemes, uh, they classically do best at 34 degrees, which is why the rash is which, um, such a prominent manifestation. And uh, there were all kinds of things that they did to try to uh, kill them, including malarial therapy, which is insane. So give somebody malaria, let them have six to eight fevers, and then see if they're cured. Right. And it actually does cure people more often. Yeah. 
That's this, crazy. This was some like crazy doctor during World War One was injecting malaria into patients who were in a an, an insane asylum for neurosyphilis. Yes. yes. And then uh, apparently they got better after. IRB approved, obviously. <laughs> well, I think actually, Chris, what was it? 30, 33% of the patients died. He, he gave six, he gave it to six people. Five, it was two to 10%. I think he said he gave it to six people. Two of them died. Oh. But the other four got better or were cured. So you got that going for you. <laughs> but, it, but historically it was two to 10%, I think, right? Uh, there was so much great information, I, I couldn't even absorb it all. Yeah, this is, uh, keep in mind, everyone, this is a hot take, so feel free to verify <laughs> anything that we say on this episode. Also, Chris, the Chew Man Chew mentioned that uh, Adam Rodman in his Bedside Rounds has an entire great episode on syphilis. Therefore, we... Um, Plus, this entire talk was a podcast, which will be released. Yes, exactly. So... Let's go back and Yeah, so you could, you could fact check so this. So as my but, dad always said, don't sweat the small... Stuff. Yeah. I was. I was going to try to break, <laughs> break the cursing out for Paul, but it's I so couldn't. Excited. I couldn't do it. I got nervous, Stuart, and it's all small stuff. Stuart, you talked about this before too. The mercury. We learned that mercury. Right. How's how's that used? I, I I learned that my patients that are resistant to diuretics, I should just try mercury instead. Yeah. So apparently, mercury was an early diuretic because. In, in syphilis, they thought that, like, I think this was sort of getting rid of the humors. They would give mercury, they would put mercury on people's skin, and they would, like, s- their tears would come out, and they would be, like, urinating like crazy. So apparently mercury is a, a type of a diuretic. And it also stimulates your catecholamines. I mean, come on, you can't go wrong. Yeah. You could take a sauna in it. Basically, they had mercury saunas. Yeah, but mercury no longer used as a medication because it is quite toxic and uh, shouldn't be used especially now since we have penicillin, which has been around for 75 years and there's still no resistance, uh, at least for syphilis. Thank goodness. We'll find out that's toxic in 75 more years. <laughs> well, we should, uh, we should get some of the correspondence rolling through here. Uh, first up is Molly Hoyblein, whose last name is often mispronounced, but I think I got it right. You actually didn't. It's Hoyblein. Hoyblein. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. I hear all kinds you of. You got mine right, so though. it was close. How did I get it wrong? <laughs> I don't know, Matt. How did you not get it wrong? Is the question. Yeah. Okay. It's not surprising. I'm sorry, Molly. That's fine. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I went to two great talks today, and um, the first one I wanted to talk about was the update in women's health with uh, Dr. McNeil and Dr. DiNardo. Um, so they went through a lot of really interesting publications that have come out in the past year relating to women's health. And a couple that I wanted to highlight was a study, uh, that was just published in 2018 in NEGM about treatment of osteopenia. And so we're all used to treating osteoporosis with bisphosphonates, but usually with osteopenia, we are recommended to check a FRAC score and see if a patient reaches a certain threshold. In this study, though, they just took patients with osteopenia and didn't calculate a FRAX. Uh, so it was women over age 65. And the mean T-score was negative 1.6. And they treated them with zolindronic acid every 18 months, so a little bit different from how we would normally treat osteoporosis every 12 months. And in four years, the number needed to treat to prevent a fracture was only 10 to 15. So it seems like a pretty um, effective treatment. Seems pretty promising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, wonder if that's going to make it into future guidelines. Were they speculating on that at all? They basically just said it hadn't yet made it into them. Yeah. Uh, so that not, sounds like not that's necessarily. Gonna, that sounds like that's going to make it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to know if we can extrapolate that to oral bisphosphonates. You know, it may make sense that you could, but it hasn't been studied. Mm. 
Yeah, the next study was one that was published in JAMA Dermatology this uh, past year by Fritos. Um, and that was looking at women who were treated with CIRMs for breast cancer. And a lot of women struggle with hair loss following these treatments or during these treatments. Um, and they highlighted that 67% of women on aromatase inhibitors and 33% of women taking tamoxifen developed some level of alopecia that was bothersome to the patient. But the good news was 80% of them uh, improved with topical minoxidil. So we can feel comfortable recommending this to our patients. And then uh, the next study was interesting to me that they actually found money to publish this, but um, it looked at women who had frequent UTIs and randomized one group to drinking 1.5 liters of water a day and one group to just drinking their normal amount, which was presumably less. And in the high water group, the 1.5 liters a day, the women had 1.7 UTIs and in the low water group, they had 3.2. So it was statistically significant. So very easy treatment. That should be just like a public health measure. Yes. Just like everybody do that. And then like on a national scale, like what would that do to kidney stones and UTIs? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that they highlighted was um, looking at imaging around breast pain. And so breast pain is a common complaint. And most of the time it doesn't relate to cancer in any way. Uh, so we really shouldn't be evaluating it with diagnostic imaging. And they highlighted clinically insignificant breast pain as breast pain that involved more than one quadrant and was cyclic and had a normal clinical exam. Um, So most of these women, we can just treat symptomatically and we can really reassure them. And there's no need to evaluate them with imaging. Uh, And they looked retrospectively and 30% of imaging done for diagnostic, uh, sorry, 30% of diagnostic breast imaging was done for breast pain. So that's a lot of wasted money and often led to you know, repeat imaging and sometimes biopsies, and none of those turned out to be cancerous. Did, did they go into, like, what is symptomatic care for that or anything? Like, is it just NSAIDs or, like, compresses or something? Yeah, it's it's. they didn't really talk about it, but it's mostly, like, bra-fitting NSAIDs. Um, there has been gabapentin has been recommended like it is for everything. <laughs> for everything, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know. Paul does not like that. Evidence-free. <laughs> um. Okay, but yeah. the big point is, uh, if someone has breast pain, your first thought should not be to proceed to diagnostic imaging. Right, your first thought should be a clinical exam and a history. And so, obviously, if you feel a lump or see a skin change, you should do diagnostic imaging. But okay, in the absence of those, if it's sort of diffuse pain, just treat it. And does patient age play a role in that at all, or is it not even part of the stratification? Not part of the stratification. Yeah. Uh, And then lastly, um, a study that was published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology this past year was looking at testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And, um, you know, we're all pretty familiar with testing routinely in genital sites. But in women, we often fail to ask about receptive anal intercourse. And they found that in women who were uh, having receptive anal intercourse, doing genital testing missed 20% of chlamydia and 15% of gonorrhea cases. So we really just should be mindful about asking for that and then doing rectal swabs if women are having receptive anal intercourse. Yeah, not something I was doing on a regular basis, but I would start now. Yeah. Dana Dunn, when we did our our podcast on syphilis and Mm -hmm. STIs with Dana Dunn, that was one of the things she said. You have to ask patients like ask them what they, when they're having intercourse, what are they using? And then you have to swab all of those areas. Otherwise you're going to miss stuff. Any other ones? Uh, Those were the ones from the women's health talk. And then I also attended one on clinical guidelines and um, the ACP just put out a, 
let me see what they called it, a guidance statement uh, this week. <laughs> so um, very new, hot off the press around breast cancer screening. And the idea with the guidance statement is to help clinicians kind of make sense of multiple different guidelines. And so we have so many different guidelines that are similar, but not exactly the same around breast cancer screening. And it was just a look at the evidence and then their opinion on what we should be doing. And the good news is they basically recommend the United States Preventative Task Force guidelines. So um, in women 40 to 49, clinicians should weigh the benefits and risks, discuss it with the patient. But for most average risk patients, uh, the harms will outweigh the benefits. And then from 50 to 74, screen every other year. And then after age 75, no need to continue screening. Or if the woman has a less than 10-year life expectancy. And then uh, they also recommended against doing clinical breast exams. So Which is... Unless like, they have pain. Yes, unless they have pain. So this, this is for and then asymptomatic pain. Screening, right? average risk screening. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, then everyone does that, and then they have pain, and they do it some more. Yeah. I, it's hard to convince patients not to get it. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think has such like a public penetration that just it's going to be so hard to get people to ever stop doing like self-exams mm-hmm. and or even just like... The clinician yes, exams. They'll they be like, like, my doctor like never does of, breast exams on me. What's their problem? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Molly. I think uh, I think the great Justin Lee Burke is up next. Justin, uh, yeah. I wanted to give my condolences yeah, on I Texas Tech. Talk about it. Oh man, <laughs> Bob Centaur. Bob Centaur is a Virginia alum, yeah. and he was bragging yeah. about. Uh, so I'll let you fight that out with him tonight at the uh, recording. Well, we were we were very proud to make it to the finals. You know, there's still a lot of Red Raider pride. So that is, yeah, uh, that it is a good. It was a good season for us, right? Um, yeah, so I saw a couple few. Uh, I saw a few different things today. Uh, the conference kind of started with a session this morning on the top ten articles that are most likely to influence your practice. So I think I always like when the conferences kind of review some of the new material from the past year, um, and it was reassuring because I think a lot of the stuff we have talked about in previous episodes. So they talked about the ACP guidelines for diabetes. Um, and putting a new focus on some of the medications that have more cardiovascular benefits, not just looking at A1C goals. Um, they talked about the study that was on a hot cake uh, not too long ago of the Massachusetts opiate use disorder um, study where basically demonstrating that a third of individuals that overdosed um, on opiates, only a third were receiving long-term care after that in the form of buprenorphine or methadone. Right. Which is very disappointing. Which is very disappointing. How or hot cakes did that get? <laughs> uh, I, d- I, d- I think Paul Sorry, refuses. Paul. It was I, Paul I, yeah, presented the I've article. Always, I'm not indulging I gave that. it a five five hot cakes, which is almost a full stack. But it's a dream of mine to ask how many hot cakes. So <laughs> check it was worth it goal accomplished. I think it demonstrates the opportunity that still exists for us to uh, improve opiate use disorder treatment. Yeah, the study was great. The What it was measuring was sad. Actually, if we could rate all the rest of, uh, we'll give a hotcakes for all the rest of the pearls that you're doing, just to uh, just to piss off. Really Pearl. wish that we would not um, p- piss Paul. off Paul. Right, Pearl. Hey, Pearl. I go with Pearl. Some of the other articles they talked about the new cardiovascular disease guidelines and lipid guidelines that I know we have a upcoming episode that's going to discuss, uh, and then one of the articles that got a lot of press coverage was this association with. Very hot tea drinking but not and esophageal cancer. Not soup, uh, not coffee. They uh, actually tested very those. hot tea. I actually don't think they studied. They test. No. I don't think they tested. No, they, no they, that's they just they test soup. Be in, no. yeah. That was a secondary analysis with the <laughs> soup. Yeah, um, and it was it was actually okay to drink warm tea. It was just the very very hot 
And unsurprisingly, if you also smoked and drank alcohol, that increased your chance so, of esophageal cancer. So if you, cancer. if you swallow boiling water, it's bad for you. Bad for you to swallow burning water. Top 10. I made the top 10 list this year. Uh, so another one of the, the sessions was the cardiovascular p- pearls with Dr. Paul McKee from uh, Mayo Clinic. Um, he had a few good ones that I think are always good reminders and kind of good just kind of clinic um, pearls. Uh, the first was um, just looking at loop diuretics and that uh, furosemide or Lasix uh, is a medicine that has very wide range of bioavailability. Um, and he quoted any range between 10 and 100% bioavailability. So if you had a patient who's on 160 milligrams BID um, and is not diuresing well, this is when you would consider going to like a torsemide or Bumets just because the bioavailability is much more consistent. Um, another pearl, uh, that came up was for patients that have HEFPEF, a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, um, about a third that have confirmed HEFPEF on catheterization will have normal pro-BNPs, which is kind of another shot that pro-BNP is not, uh, the most widely accurate, uh, biomarker for, for heart failure. One that was uh, pretty interesting was a case presentation of a pre-op patient who got a pre-op EKG. Uh, that a lot of people moaned about, but showed a new left bundle branch block. And there's discussion about what to do with this new left bundle branch block. That was a great moan, Stuart. You would have fit in very well in the the session uh, with the group moaning. Um, But he demonstrated this evidence that left bundle branch block has no clear association with uh, coronary artery disease, with ischemic heart failure, or any other uh, serious cardiovascular outcome um, so that we can uh, continue to ignore a new left bundle branch block, at least for surgery. See what happens. Right. But he also made the other important point that even if they had CAD, even if it was a clear cut marker, 100% they had CAD, if they had a left bundle branch block, you don't do anything for asymptomatic CAD other than treat with optimal medical management anyway. So it doesn't really change... All that much you do is the ischemic workup is not, sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, but yeah. You don't need to go chasing down an ischemic workup in an asymptomatic patient being the important point. And one of my fellow POCUS uh, faculty members tweeted that out and said, just just ultrasound them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but where did this come from? Because like I was oh, taught yeah. from training, okay, a left bundle branch block is equivalent to an MI. So yeah. those people yeah, need to be like bundle. worked up. Well, I think that, you know, there's still some thought of that. I know an inpatient, you know, within days, if there's a new left bundle branch block, you're always kind of concerned. What he cited was uh, pretty clear evidence of patients came coming in with new left bundle branch block and comparing them to match controls. I mean, there's no significant difference in outcome as far as whether they have coronary artery disease or cardiovascular uh, negative outcomes in any way. So, um, Right. And I think a patient that presents to your ER with crushing chest pain and a new yeah. left bundle is a different patient where you, then you do a screening EKG and find a left bundle branch block. And they're like, oh, I don't know what that means. So I, I think that clinical context is probably markedly different in those patients too. Okay. And then one of the ones that I think was uh, the most uh, uh, impressive from a pathophysiology standpoint, this was brought up a little bit in the hepatorenal syndrome episode, but... Um, the presenter gave a case of a patient with pretty severe heart failure. He was not diuresing well, um, but the patient did not want to come in to the hospital. And in these patients that have a protuberant abdomen or have ascites from heart failure, uh, basically demonstrated that if you do a therapeutic paracentesis, not only will they have significant symptomatic improvement, but by removing the 
fluid by decreasing the intra-abdominal pressure. You can relieve the renal uh, vessels. You can relieve the pressure that's on the kidneys. And then the patient actually becomes more responsive to diuretic use. And the diuretics become more effective in helping to get the rest of the fluid off. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. The final pearl, I think, from uh, that session was, uh, it was also a pulmonology session. And while um, I don't think this comes up too much in the outpatient setting, but there was a great sign that's fun to say, the flip-flop fungal sign. Uh, the Sounds flip-flop like fungal flip cup. Sign. The flip-cup exactly. fungal sign? The flip-cup fungal sign. That can be a curbsider's uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, after-party event. My favorite songs, this is pointless, you can cut this out or maybe you can't, but one of, probably one of my favorite songs of all time is a song called uh, Right on Frankenstein, and as soon as I heard flip-flop fungal sign, like that's, that's the chorus that's been going through my head. I've been singing it to myself all day long, just... I'm not going to do it for the show. Didn't have to mention it. I'm sure that one listener that knows that <laughs> yeah. song is going to just be... They're going to yeah. be doing cartwheels. Yeah. <laughs> this has everything. <laughs> so the flip-flop fundal sign. Um, fundal infections can often mimic metastatic cancer. And so in a patient that comes in with a clearly new pulmonary nodule and a new um, uh, um, lymph node that, demonst- that, uh, that lights up on PET, if the lymph node is brighter than the actual pulmonary nodule itself, that is not consistent with cancer. That's the opposite of what we usually associate with cancer. It is, in fact, flip-flopped from what we think of as cancer, where the lymph node is brighter, and hence the name. And that sign, if the lymph node is brighter than the pulmonary nodule, actually has a positive predictive value of 90% for being a fungal infection. And if you have a positive fungal um, serology, like a positive uh, uh, histoplasmosis screen, then it is a 100% um, positive predictive value. You do not have to biopsy this nodule, um, so it can prevent people from thinking that they have cancer, prevent these people from getting unnecessary biopsy. I think we should challenge listeners that if they have ever seen a radiology read that has the term flip-flop fungal sign, they need to send that in. Beautiful. Uh, it- and it, I, you may have said this, but the lymph node has to be ipsilateral. So if you have, mm-hmm. if the lymph node is on the contralateral side, all bets are off. But if it's ipsilateral lymph node that lights up more than the, than the, the nodule itself, that's the, the flip-flop fungal sign. Now that mm-hmm. you've explained it, it makes a lot more sense because I thought you said flip-flop fundal yeah. sign at first. <laughs> fungal. And I was fungal. real confused about fungal. pulmonology. Fungal yeah, okay. So this different. mushroom walks into a bar and he, uh, <laughs> no. he orders a drink. <laughs> come Justin, on. I give that Come on, girl, I'm a fun guy. Uh, I give that... Uh, Four hotcakes. This is that was the worst good. day of my life. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's bring up Emmy before we run out of time here. All right. Emmy, this is, I think this is your first time officially on the show. Emmy's our newest curbsider and she is fantastic. So thank you for, for joining us. Uh, yes. And thank you, Matt. Thank you everyone for, for having me. Um, so I went to the pre-course conference, which is the two days before the actual ACP conference was on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yesterday, I went to a cardiology talk, acute coronary syndrome follow-up care by, uh, David Fishman from Thomas Jefferson. The first thing he talked about was beta blocker use post MI. So we should be giving them within 24 hours of the ACS event, um, unless there's a contraindication like CHF, low output or impending shock. But then it's kind of a question for how long do you keep it on? Now, old guidelines had talked about keep it on forever. But what we found is the prior data was really based in a time where we didn't have early intervention and the other standard therapies that we use today. So he recommends that the duration of therapy can be reconsidered after one to three years. So that means after one to three years out from the event, it is reasonable to stop the beta blocker. 
I think that's good news. I, 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 I would love to see that formally in a guideline somewhere, but I think that's, I mean, patients do not like to take beta blockers, but I don't know. Renee, what are they doing out at uh, Cashlack Northwest? <laughs> yeah, Cashlack Northwest. Well, I was just thinking that would be real useful because sometimes patients with a history of MI come into the the pre-op clinic and um, like, well, they should probably, I mean, they have an indication for a beta blocker, but I'm not going to call the cardiologist and start with not, and you know, and it's like in the old days when I was in my residency and I walked uphill, uphill to the hospital, both ways. No shoes. No shoes, actually plastic bags for shoes. <laughs> so yeah, in those old days, uh, you know, every, it's like beta blockers were in the water. Like, you know, everybody yeah. should have one. Um, so I am now rambling and, but I would, I yes. would love to be able yes. to be, pulling I would love a guideline blockers. where I don't have to stress it a little bit. Like, yeah. do I have to try to bird dog as cardiologist <laughs> to figure out should this patient be on a beta blocker? Yeah, yes. absolutely. And the caveat being, of course, if they have a low EF to keep it on for uh, the reduced ejection uh, fraction. Right. Yes. Um, a second pearl I picked up, which I think we'll discuss more in a future episode, is the new ACC AHA, AHA guidelines on statin use post-MI. We're going back to the numbers. So you're aiming for your LDL to be less than 70. And if you're not getting that with the high-dose statin that they should be on post-MI, you're Next step is going to add ezetimibe. And then further down the line, if you're still not there, you're looking for the PCSK9 inhibitors. Which are super duper cheap, I heard. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, very cheap. Easy only to get, no yeah. prior auth. No, nope. yeah. only like, what, $1,600 a month? <laughs> Stuart, have, have you successfully gotten anybody on them now? I have uh, five patients on them. God. But unfortunately, of those five patients, two of them had adverse events and had oh. to stop it. One was uh, acute or chronic sinusitis. The other one actually uh, developed injection uh, injection site reaction. Uh, three of them have been maintained on it. One for familial hyperlipidemia. Um, a, a gentleman who's in his 40s who had a, his father pass away in his 40s. Another one is a, a similar story, same thing. And the last one was a gentleman post-MI. I skipped Zetia for... Both for all for those three because they didn't respond well to statin therapy, which told me that the, that the the mutation was probably in the LDL receptor itself, and so PCSK9 would help to upregulate that. Right. Yes, and another post in my pearl I took home was we often don't ask patients about sexually sexual activity, nor do they you know, have the courage to ask, but you can safely tell them if they had an uncomplicated MI that they can resume sexual activity around one week afterwards. Prior guidelines had actually said six to eight weeks of waiting. So giving giving them that is good news. Take away the beta blocker. They I was just going to say, gonna say the beta blocker is not going to help, but... Yep. And um, just to be aware that 20 to 30% of those patients, the male patients will have sexual dysfunction. However, less than, yeah, less than half of them will bring it up. Um, and you should feel comfortable adding the phosphodiesterase inhibitors as long as they are not already on nitrates. So having had the MI is, is no contraindication for using the PDE inhibitors. I think up next is the great Shreya Trivedi. I'm I'm recovered. Now oh, we that need I've to had, fix the mic. Yeah, I was let's like, re, let's pretend like you've done this before. <laughs> this is a little weird. <laughs> is this your first of... podcast, Shreya? Yeah. <laughs> no. um, I'm recovered now that I had Molly's water and Justin's coffee. <laughs> this is like real team effort. And someone else's banana bread. Um, Pearls for a conference is drink a lot of water and pace yourself. Is what I'm learning. Um, but in terms of clinical pearls, um, I started off. Uh, 
or one of the talks in the morning was on top 10 med errors. And maybe the two, a big majority of the talk was about INRs and meds that interfere with INR. And I think they're, I think maybe of the many of them, the two big ones that I want to talk about are Bactrim and acetaminophen for you guys to think about um, the next time you use it. Uh, so Bactrim is one of the most severe ones that will increase the, a patient's INR. So next time you have someone with a UTI or a cellulitis that you're discharging on Bactrim um, and uh, who's on a, who's on warfarin, um, think maybe think a little bit more about it. And then in terms of Tylenol, um, there was a study that even showed that say patients are on nine, uh, an average of nine grams of Tylenol a week, that's going to increase the person's risk of an INR greater than six to like 10 more times, which I think is crazy because nine grams of Tylenol a week is not much. Like how many times in the hospital do we put patients on three grams of Tylenol a week? Um, yeah. Three grams. We're of t- probably three, oh, ugh, one per gram, day, Shreya. One gram We're of gonna, Tylenol. I'm prescribing Q8. a nap after this <laughs> for you. <laughs> and uh, the other uh, the other um, cool thing that he went over in the talk was statin-induced myalgia and your approach to it. Um, obviously, that's it's a common complaint that a lot of our patients had, but the cool thing was 70% of patients who are tried back on the same statin actually don't have any side effects. So um, the conversation you can have with your patient is, hey, we can retry this same med. You have a seven out of 10 chance that you'll be completely fine. Is that a chance you want to take? Um, and so kind of having that shared decision making. Um, <laughs> Stuart, what were you? No, it, it just seems like a, a strange thing to ask a patient. Is that a chance you want to take? So maybe don't phrase it that way. But you know, the seven out of ten, you have a seven out of 10 uh, chance that, you know, you won't feel anything if we continue with the same med. And if that's something that they say yes to, then great. If not, you can, the next step would be to do twice a week of high potency statin. So like resuvastatin twice a week. Um, and then if all else fails, you go to azetamide and, uh, and did, go from there. Did the speaker mention the nocebo effect that it, like, do I feel like some people don't even believe, I, I don't know that I even believe statin-induced myalgia is a real thing. Like, yeah. I feel like it's just so out there in the news that like most people assume they're going to get it. And maybe that's part of why, like if you try them on a different agent, you're like, you didn't, you got it with that agent, but let's try this other one. Maybe exactly, you won't. Exactly. And so I think the fact that like 70% go on the same one and don't feel anything might be contributing more to that, that idea as well. Um, and then one one last thing, because I know we're running short on time, is on um, I did go to Vinny Aurora's talk on handoffs, and I'm not really sure how to recap like her whole research career worth of wonderful papers and things. So I will not do that a disservice. But I, just one uh, one fun fact is um, one of the studies she highlighted was looking at interruptions um, when sign out is given, and interestingly, it wasn't. Pagers that was the number one uh, number one interruption. It was actually side conversations, which I think is just like interesting food for thought because so m- many memories I have from residency is like when I'm debriefing that awful night I had, or like, hey, like you know, just some time to connect with your co-residents. Um, but just thinking about oh, that that could be actually harming uh, me getting across important messages to to the you know the day team, um, and so to have those side, side conversations before or after the handoff, but use handoff as a time to be like a more of a sacred time of making sure the next team is getting the important information they need. Did, did those did the de- the definition of side conversation include editorialization? So like oh. talking about the hospitalization but not giving an actual handoff? We didn't go into that. We'll have to tweet Vinny and ask yeah. her.
how did she recommend you f- avoid that? Is it maybe just like the person that's getting the sign out is in a room with just one other person at a time rather than like a big room where there's like multiple conversations going on? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, so she, she actually started off with a study where they looked at it in pediatric uh, handoff because in peds, they have these like windowed off sign out. I don't know. I don't know what peds is like, but basically the, the quote unquote optimal environment where it, you're not having environmental distractions. And even then they found 60% percent of the quote unquote important information was not communicated. Um, so, uh, so yeah, all this, all this just goes to show we need to be more thoughtful, um, about it. I believe the side conversations, I'm incredibly easily distracted. It's like, show yeah. me or, you know, I just, when people are talking behind me, I really struggle to focus in on what they're trying to tell me someone else. Especially so, if it's some like really good hospital gossip or something. Yeah. Like or like that. there's it's an just... ultrasound picture over there. I yeah. mean, <laughs> Maybe it's we done. just need to like rethink the way we do sign out and handoff. Is is the clinician attention span for twenty patients in that five? Is that too much to ask? Five minutes of critical information. Um, you know, is there a better way to deliver it? I don't know. Twitter length sign out. <laughs> There's this amazing study that looked at the duration of the sign out for each patient, and not surprisingly, each patient you go through, it just gets progressively shorter. So by the time you're to the last patient, that's the one you take the least time talking about, even if that's the sickest patient. Right. So even yeah. sort of sequencing is something that I don't think we think a whole lot about. But um, She did recommend that chunking chunking the information, that it's easier for the receiver to, to get. Yeah, so I looked up the study here. It says side conversations occurred often and varied in subject from personal to professional well-being to systems-based issues. Ah. So it wasn't yeah. specifically about the patient, but say like, I really tried to order that troponin last night. So yeah. it may have, it may not have been a true side conversation, but it, it was sidelining whatever the transition was. Exactly. I bet this seems like a topic that we're going to talk about for like 20 minutes, but we have to end <laughs> the episode because we're trying to keep these recaps very short. Thank you for the excellent pearls, Shreya. Thank you to our wonderful guest. Thanks Dr. for having me. Renee I got to Diverstall. say hotcakes in a our, sentence. And uh, yeah, thank you for being our chief of POCUS. We will uh, pleasure. We will continue to follow you, and I hope to attend more of your POCUS pre courses, especially since I was not able to attend day two. By the B type symptoms, <laughs> <laughs> due, to, due to a terrible case of uh, what did I have, Paul? Man flu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we diagnosed. That for. is wicked. Yeah, that it was not bad. to be toyed with. I, I was on the couch with my feet up. My wife was feeding me soup all day. <laughs> Peeled grapes. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Paul, would you do the honors? Oh, uh, what am I doing? You you should have it memorized. I do now. not have it memorized. Okay. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Oh, uh, yummy. <laughs> yummy. <laughs> oh, no. You can get I have sh- to chime in with my own yummy. Yeah, th- thank you. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast for other shows. This show won't have any show notes. (laughs) Uh, And you can sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. That's right. Thank you, Matt. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact Matt personally at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Emmy Okamoto. Okay. Okay. Any <laughs> brick. Okamoto. 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 Stop trying. Go, <laughs> can go, go can to we just take a moment to actually say it correctly? I mean, how do you pronounce? I mean, come here. <laughs> say your name for us, please. Okamoto. Amy Okamoto. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris Chu on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Stuart Kent Brigham. Chu man. You can't, you can't <laughs> yes, the me. Chew Man Chew. <laughs>
And we should probably uh, consider all of our all of our wonderful contributors to this episode as producers. And of course, Chris Chu has been filming this and tweeting like crazy and helping to run this whole thing. Uh, so I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Renee Kathleen Diversdahl. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Is that me? And goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. I can't reach the mic. <laughs> that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs>